0: Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's Retro Music Makers. Today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Jim Foster. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, songwriting. We'll get into some other insights as well about recording and live shows, as well as the ups and downs and the adventures of a career entertainer. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades uh, Jim Foster is perhaps best known for his successful recording act, Foster Child, but has also done uh, many other things as well. he been involved as a songwriter and performer, his solo career as Jim Foster, his time with One Horse Blue, and many other musical adventures that we'll get into through our discussion. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Jim. How are you? I'm good. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, Thanks. We're trying to get a handle on the Canadian, uh, retro Canadian music makers, and you certainly uh, fit that category. You've been Hey, what that. are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> retro. That's uh, that's a nice way to put it. You know, they, the music business, right? If they, if they don't like it because it's older, it's dated. And if they do like yeah. it, it's retro. Right? It's, I'm retro then. Okay. <laughs> so you're retro. Cool. <laughs> so, um, well, good. So you were born in Victoria. You're a West Coast guy.
1: Yeah, I was born here and moved back to Alberta when my parents broke up at uh, the age of eight. Okay. So, you know, I had the smell of the ocean in my brain and always wanted to get back here.
0: So you you finished growing up in Alberta and then gravitated your way back out to the West Coast?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, it would have been difficult, you know, just working as a struggling musician to try and jump into the pool out here, but... Because of the success of Foster Child, I was able to, uh, as that band was breaking up, move out here and, you know, get a foot in the door. So. Yeah.
0: Oh, good. Well, we're glad you did. We love having you out here. I'm a permanent transplant from Ontario, though, so I'm... Ah, there you go. Yeah, so I came out here with my parents when I was young. So what was your musical background? Like, What did you play drums, organ? Did you try everything the way a lot of us did?
1: No, no. uh, we had a fairly musical family, more on my mother's side, and, uh, it wasn't a regular occurrence, but once or twice a year, they'd all get together. I'm, you know, five, six years old, seven years old, up to the time I was 10. And uh, my aunt played piano, my uncle played harmonica, my other uncle played lap steel and banjo, and they all sang.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, they gave me a ukulele when I was probably five. Uh, which I never took lessons on or anything, but I just dicked around on it and learned how to play Wild Weekend on a ukulele.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, and then uh, didn't really spend a lot of time on it. We When we moved to Edmonton, the kid across the street had an amazing harmony electric guitar. Oh, it was cool. like the top of the line. Yeah. And uh, he couldn't play it to save his button. Within like three days, I could play it because I understood the mechanics from the ukulele
0: yeah perfect
1: so i lobbied for a guitar and that was uh took till christmas to get a guitar you yeah. know
0: yeah well no that's cool because when you're a singer too if you want to sing songs the guitar is kind of the obvious instrument i, I like drums and like keyboards but i wanted to play guitar because i wanted to be able to sing and play right there, yeah so well good and so then did you take some lessons or did you just kind of, yeah, kind of figure yeah out?
1: no that was the deal they bought me a guitar but i had to take lessons yeah there you go from uh clarence Plouf. <laughs> Guitar store in Edmonton, North Edmonton. Oh, very cool. Rob Edwards was a teacher there who runs the uh, blues organization in Victoria these days.
0: Oh, isn't that neat? And, yeah.
1: and uh, did that for about six months, but my ear was better than anything. And uh, it got to the point where I'd be teaching my teacher the songs I just picked up off the radio. Yeah. And uh, so that was that. And uh, I think played with my neighbors, you know.
0: It's kind of a typical musical experience. I mean, some everyone tries something, but some people just get it and some people don't, right? And if you get it, if it's in you, then you just figure it out.
1: Well, you know, yeah. I, I uh, was reading a Kurt Vonnegut thing last night. He, he's got a great book out called Pity the Reader. It's about the writing process. Yeah. And uh, he had been teaching writing, and they were going, well, can you actually teach writing? And he said, well, yeah, I mean, you can talent is important but if the talent is there then you can help them to realize their talent if there's no talent of course you know they may be talented at some other thing
0: you're totally right because i've i've tried to give guitar lessons to people and stuff and it's just really painful if somebody doesn't have it in their heart or, or that sort of natural affinity to it they you just there's nothing you can do i've told one guy I said there's no pill i can give you there's no incantation you can do that's going to make you something give you something you don't have
1: you yeah and they have to have the passion on top of that, I mean, absolutely. I, I remember one winter in Calgary, I was quite broke. I was about twenty or so, so I decided to teach at this little place, and uh, you just got a room and they'd bring students in it. There was this one kid, and he'd come in and I'd say, "So did you practice what you taught? What I taught you?" And he goes, "No, there was hockey practice." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you can't argue that. it's Canada, you know yeah. Yeah. that's what he was into, so. You go,
0: man. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And my my dad paid for lessons, and he used to bug me all the time. You got to practice. I said, Dad, I practice every day. I practice all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> he just felt he needed to say that to me. Right? Yeah. So for you, what was your what was your kind of break? What was that moment where you thought you know I might be able to make something out of this? I might be able to make a living out of this? Like, did you have a defining moment when you sort of realized? Well,
1: it? it it was no, it was more of a process. Uh, I was fortunate to be in Edmonton from the time I was. 13 okay and uh, the Beatles landed when I was 14 so I'd already been playing for a year and then suddenly there was a scene and Edmonton already had a million bands I mean the radio stations supported the bands there were community hall gigs everywhere all the time it was just a, a, an amazing thing Willie and the Walkers were there with Woman woman a- A&W Lords as they were called later became Privilege
0: yeah.
1: uh, Lenny Richard and the Nomads people were making records and so I just had a little dickety little band, but we could go out and make 50 bucks playing in a church hall somewhere on a Saturday night,
0: yeah.
1: you know. So that developed, and then when I moved to Calgary for grade 12, worst thing you can do to a kid. <laughs> uh, I knew nobody, it's grade 12, you know, all the cliques are already set, but yeah. I could play at that point fairly well and sing. And so I found a band in the school and they needed somebody to do what I did. And so I joined them. and. Then next thing you know, we're doing sock ops in the school, and that led to local agency, whatever, in Calgary. And you could just get the third-tier gigs or whatever yeah. and just kept working away at that. And uh, I had already started writing songs. Just, cause I just It was something I always liked to do. Yeah. And uh, gosh, the turning point, I guess, was I was making money from the time I was say, 16. Not great money, but money.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, my folks wanted me to go to university. So I did the first year of that and then the second year of that was, uh, you know, the student loans were involved and they didn't have money for me to go. So I'm having to borrow money to do something I didn't want to
0: do. Mm-hmm.
1: So I dropped out and uh, the university threw a gig, a big uh, a concert with the birds and Chilliwack Behind their first album, and Edward Bear, and my band got the opening slot. Oh,
0: cool!
1: Yeah, and uh, next thing I know, I'm sitting in the Birds' dressing room while they warm up acoustically. I'm sitting right next to Clarence White for an hour. Wow! I got to go with Roger McGuinn to get our checks because I was the band leader.
0: Cool.
1: You know, yeah. and uh, he was the most humble guy. You could, I, you know, we walk in and it's like some university comptroller going to pay us he doesn't know anybody from anybody and roger mcguinn to me is like paul mccartney you know yeah. and uh, so the guy says uh, what's your name i said jim foster he says what band i said joshua hill he says gives me a check it's roger what's your name roger mcguinn sir what band the birds sir <laughs> like no attitude <laughs> wow. talk about an indelible mark on me that you don't have to be an asshole
0: yeah yeah too you, funny you,
1: yeah and so that was a that was a really big thing and then we did a good job so that was in the spring and then in the september they brought us back to open for eric burden and war and the Chilliwack again and mitch rider in the detroit wheels and oh, wow. mitch riders in our dressing room jamming with us wow. you know so those were big pivotal things that made me think okay and i would have been 20 at that time
0: yeah it yeah.
1: took another four or five years banging around the town in various bands, mostly which came out of the friends out of that band. We yeah. formed a few more bands and and would throw our own gigs and you know the, they were the rough and ready days and then uh, I got a steady gig with a quartet in a it was a six night a week gig in a kind of a keg and cleavery kind of place only cooler it had a lounge with a built in sound system and everything. These California guys opened it yeah. so uh. They sent a band up from California to open the place, and Greg Leitz, who's now the go-to steel player and lap steel player in the world, he was in this band and got me started, getting me to play a slide and everything, and uh, befriended me. So when they left, it was a six-night-a-gig week or six-night-a-week gig. They did two months, and then it was up for an, another band. So we auditioned, and we got it. Oh, so nice. suddenly, I had six nights a week work for good money yeah and i could work out my original material and uh cool.
0: so this was we, in calgary I, right this You're was in right? calgary yeah. yeah and and cool. so
1: then i got heard by some uh local representatives from record companies it was warner brothers actually at the time just the local guys working in the warehouse and stuff but they yeah. called some people and next thing i knew i was doing a demo and Gay Delorme produced the demo yeah and uh Then we didn't even end up signing with Warner's because my manager at the time thought, "Well, let's see what we can get from somebody else." So we ended up signing with CBS, and that was the beginning of Foster Child. Uh, I did a, I did a, just did a single. They said, "Well, let's just do a single of this song that Gay had helped me demo." So we did a single and got a radio hit out of it. Yeah. And then they want that was a song called "Let Me Down Easy."
0: Yeah.
1: And then they wanted uh, an album, and I didn't really have a band that was capable of it because most of them had gotten fired doing the single.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little, you know, s- little tension and a little stress in the uh, studio there.
1: <laughs> the Italian producer takes you aside and says, Jimmy, you're going to remember this day. It's the biggest <laughs> day of your life. We have to fire the band. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, Yeah, it was pretty uh, strange and and hard to deal with.
0: So you were recording and kind of demoing tunes for a few years leading up to that, though, right? That wasn't your first... uh, Yeah,
1: just on my sound-on-sound recorder, you know.
0: Okay, yeah. And then Foster Child sort of emerged out of that house gig? Was that the actual band, or did you have a separate recording?
1: It was the the band that did the demo. Okay. And then I had to replace a bunch of people, because the drummer wasn't good enough to record. okay. All the stuff that shows up in the studio, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I called my friend Vern Wills, who was the only person I knew who had made a record up in Edmonton. Yeah. And uh, he said, hey, I called him from Toronto. He said, hey, I just heard you on the radio. That's a great song. I said, well, I need a band. I need another songwriter to work with. And that's what you do, and you've had a record out, so you understand the process. You want to be in the band? Okay, yeah. So that was the beginning of that whole project with the albums
0: and stuff. Okay, yeah, because I was curious about that, because when you're doing a house gig, too, six nights a week, it kind of sucks the musical life out of you if you let it, right? So,
1: Well, it was a tiny little lounge, though. Yeah. So it's a quartet working in a 100-seat lounge. Yeah, okay. And soft seats, and, nice. uh, you know, we worked hard at learning new tunes, and so we were doing, like, Eagles and Loggins and Messina and uh, yeah. Pure Prairie League. It was more of a country rock kind of setting.
0: How did you I mean back then a lot of the record companies were splashing a lot of money around for projects that they thought would would go somewhere and how did you end it up with the CBS deal?
1: Well, cuz they heard the demo. Uh, we sent them the demo yeah. of Let Me Down Easy and they said, "Yeah, it's a great song. We want to re-record it." Okay. With our producers. Yeah. Which they which they did. And in some ways, uh, may have missed the boat on it and be, because this was an Italian producer who'd worked with Phil Spector. Yeah. And I was I was coming from Eagles and Neil Young. Yeah. So that stuff was gone. It was like, don't ever bring that acoustic guitar in here again.
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> interesting, which is kind of your main thing, especially these. Yeah, I've here.
1: still got my Martin D-28, and I've had other people tell me, other engineers tell me it's the best sounding guitar they've ever heard. So, yeah. you know.
0: It's funny eh? how you get a producer, especially if you get a hot-headed one, it uh, changes the whole dynamic. And where did you record that?
1: Uh, the first song we recorded at Manta in Toronto. Yeah, okay. Then we had a hit, eh? Yeah. So then the management said, no, no, we want to record in Vancouver, because oh, okay. we're we're west. Yeah. And so they grumbled, but the, the producers from there came out here, and we recorded at Little Mountain, okay. which was fabulous, because then I got to meet everybody there. And
0: of course, yeah.
1: Brian Adams would come in in his khaki shorts and watch us. He was just a kid. Yeah. He'd that's... come in and watch us record. He was just learning everything he could, like a
0: sponge, you know? Yeah. And, and this would have been 77, right? 77? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And then, so you got to come out to the West Coast and, and, and do your thing out here, and then, of course, you ended up centering the band around here, or did you go back to Calgary once you well, were Well, no, we were
1: still in Calgary for the next two years and then moved out here at the end of 79 October 79
0: okay and then so you had uh until we meet again and i need somebody i listened to the whole album and it's it's super cool i there's a few things like i like are you ready to fly it's cool tune that easy to like and nice uh, real good yeah
1: that was the original title are you easy to like
0: <laughs> yeah, Ursula. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. But uh, but the song "Are You Ready to Fly"? I think it was great. Bass guitar player. I don't know who's playing. Yeah. You
1: know. Oh, Barry Boothman was his name. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Really? He, Barry was. Uh, he was great. Yeah. And intimidated as heck by the fact that they brought in Larry London to play drums. Yeah. And I don't. I don't know if you know who Larry London is, but he was yeah. somebody who would played on Motown hits. He played with McCartney. Yeah. When McCartney was down in Nashville, he played with the Everly Brothers. Big C, one of again. the guys, yeah. yeah. So he came in and, and uh, made the album. Yeah, really, he directed the album and just made it happen. And and Barry was so intimidated by him, he sat with his face to the wall. We just we were set <laughs> up in a circle around the drums, recording live. Yeah, and and uh, Barry sat with his. face face to the wall and a bottle of Jack Daniels between his legs.
0: <laughs> well, it's too funny because it's great. I mean, I, the, the bass part, you don't notice it unless it sticks out and you go, wow, oh, it was really good.
1: Well, that, it was then, important to him, you yeah, know. Yeah,
0: it was good too. So so then you got a couple decent hits off of that, right? Until We Meet Again and I Need Somebody, that was the two that I Need Somebody Tonight, that was the two songs that, yeah. that kind of did something for you. Yeah. That. Now that was, to, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say Magic in the Air uh, was one of Vern's tunes, So that was a, yeah. a pretty good hit off the, off the get-go. Yeah. And they made us redo "Let Me Down Easy," and it was virtually live in the studio. And it wasn't as good as the single, but the single didn't sound the same, you know.
0: And so that was the redo then on the first album
1: of "Let Me Down Easy." Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. And and so why why did you decide to redo it again if you'd already had airplay on a previous? Well, because it
1: needed to be on the album because that's the only song that we were famous for at that point in I time. Okay. But the producer, this temperamental Italian guy, was, "I'm not producing that again. I, I already did that. I can't do. I oh. just can't do that." You know, (laughs) this guy, one time Vern was upset because his guitar was not tuning well. It was an old Les Paul. Yeah. And so the producer, who's like an Italian guy with black curly hair and a big beard, calls Vern into the control room and he's sitting there in a bright yellow chiffon dress just to crack him up. Yeah. (laughs) This was production.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Interesting time. So, uh, so CBS was putting money into this. It was, I guess, it's recoupable money, but they're they're putting yeah. up the cash for you to record, right? Yeah. So
1: I don't think it was a lot. It was maybe like twenty five grand or something. I think okay. you know was our budget. We did recorded the whole thing in a week.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's that's reasonable if you can get enough sales to sort of recoup it, and then and to make some money after that. And then in seventy eight, you did Troubled Child. That was the right the next album for CBS.
1: And that's when we really blew our political relationship with uh with cbs because the original producer was the a and r guy
0: okay and we
1: wanted to work with a different producer and we wanted to work with jim gaines who had done all the steve miller records and and had done a lot of stuff in edmonton and people knew him okay. and he's he's the guy who does santana he's the only guy santana will work with like for his guitar sound and everything okay. jim's a legend yeah so we brought him up and that record took a month
0: yeah.
1: and uh you know we i think we stepped on a few toes with cbs and then not only that but as soon as the record came out i walked into c fox and don schaefer they've been very supportive of us i said yeah hey, i got the new record here and don schaefer says is it disco
0: <laughs> and oh. i said
1: i said no he says can't play it what yeah wow that's all they were playing everything had changed yeah so that was a tough time
0: and so there was the, there was no real definable single up. I mean, I listened to the whole album and that uh, It's Too Late Now is good. The song Trouble Child is good too, I think.
1: It's yeah, good. Too Late Now got a fair amount of radio play because it was sort of easy listening-ish. Yeah. You know, but yeah, nothing like the first record. Behind the Eight Ball was popular in certain circles, you know, but uh, yeah. there's some great stuff on that record. There's some real sophisticated stuff on that record. Vern came up with some great songs, Cuts Like a Razor. It's a fabulous tune. Yeah. You know. It just yeah. was what it was.
0: I know, like, and so. in, in, uh, here comes the heartache. Like the nice double lead. There's a Hammond on there, and it's, it's a melodic yep. tune harmonies. Got a, even a kind of a country rock sort of flavor. Yep. It's good, right?
1: You must know Pete Sweets here, I imagine. Of
0: course, yeah. I had a, he yeah. played, he played on my album actually. When, I did an album in 2005, and I hired him. We went down to the rock space, and he brought his Hammond down there and his old Leslie squeaking, and it was beautiful. I love yeah. I love the Hammond organ. That's my favorite.
1: Well, Peter had played with Vern mm-hmm. prior to Foster Child. Yeah. And uh, we were out here doing the first record and needed some keys. And so Vern called Peter and brought him in, and that was it. He joined the band.
0: Nice. And that's him playing on there?
1: Yeah, on both albums. It's all Peter.
0: Yeah, and then, of course, so you're you're trying to get the producer you want. You're trying to record where you want. You're trying to record the tunes in the way that you want. You're trying to keep the band together. And then, of course, the record companies, they're the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately guys, and where's the single, and that sort of oh yeah it's
1: all (laughs) typical it's all totally difficult
0: so you're going through all that it's in so lots of ups and downs i mean the 70s and 80s was a a magical time for music and for the music biz but it was also tough chasing the hit songs right did you Mm -hmm. feel that challenge of chasing the next hit
1: well it was just hard enough to write a good song uh period i mean i wrote i i I like to say i wrote a lot of frankenstein That is to say they laid on the slab and looked like songs but you could see the stitch marks yeah. You know, they didn't have the thing. If if I was trying to write to order, yeah. the, the best songs I wrote just came from the ether, more or less. And yeah. you don't always know if it's exactly the song that you need, but...
0: Well, it's interesting you should say that, because, you know, I, I talked to Mark Jordan, you know, we talked about songs and hit songs and stuff, and he said he never wrote for a specific artist. But the other thing that he pointed out was that songs... Writing a hit song's kind of a myth because it needs to be presented in the right way, produced in the right way, promoted in the right way like it needs there's a lot of things have to come together with that song, even if you think it's a good song right absolutely so i I thought that was pretty interesting from somebody who's who's had some substantial success but kind of felt a bit lucky at times too right
1: just I think most people do that that have had that success. It's just you start to understand that you're not in control of of the all the creativity that some of it is outside of you and then there's all that other stuff
0: yeah the right artist and, and just the right production can make or break a song yep. too right oh yeah. yeah
1: and if she's cute it's even better <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah well,
0: well listen let me take a short break and we'll come right back I want to ask you about the the next record deal you had and about the next album you put out so we'll take a short okay. break we'll be right back with Jim Foster You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the 60s to 80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favourites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favourite. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Jim Foster about his experiences and about his uh, record deal that he had. And I guess uh, you lost the CBS deal and then you released, the next album was On the Prowl and you signed with Vera Records. Was that uh, a Canadian record company?
1: Vera Cruz. Yeah, well, we had no plans. We were, Vern was playing bass in the original Loverboy and uh, we had moved out to Vancouver and we just went back to Alberta to do a couple gigs And uh, Wes Dacus, who ran the studio in Edmonton, also owned Veracruz Records, but they would do CKUA live broadcasts. So you'd go into the studio and you'd play for an hour, and they'd play it on the radio. So the tape had been used for like a hundred broadcasts. Oh. (laughs) Over and over and over. Oh,
0: wow.
1: So we played for an hour, and Wes was like, geez, we could release this. (laughs) (laughs) So, we came back the next day. We were in town for a week doing a club. And uh, we came in again the next afternoon and did another three songs. And uh, he said, yeah, okay, good. Let's do this. And so then we played Calgary the following week. And Vern and I would get on a plane in Calgary every morning and fly to Edmonton, go to the studio, mix all day, and uh, fly back to to Calgary and play that night. Wow for a whole week and mixed the album oh god yeah
0: yeah (laughs) must have been tired man
1: yeah yeah but stoked kind of too because you know well we're we're doing another record we weren't going to do another record and then not much happened with that best thing that happened with that record for me was that uh because wes was, was an old uh pioneer of canadian music scene he's close friends with Joni mitchell and neil young and everybody and so unbeknownst to me at some point he got a copy of that to Neil
0: yeah.
1: A- and Neil heard our cover of Helpless and uh, years later like 20 years later or whatever apparently and this is what I'm told he was playing in Duncan with Randy Backman's band and uh, for a benefit and one of the guys asked him what he thought of Katie Lang's version of Helpless and he said well it's okay but there was this band in Alberta in 1979 and man they really nailed it so cool. Cool. Yeah. And that was you. That was me, awesome. you know. Yeah. Yes.
0: So you didn't there was no real serious radio play from that, I guess, and and then of course a small radio uh record company wouldn't have the budget or the promo. Well, it's
1: that. yeah, exactly. What's funny, the funniest story about that is that the the lead-off song was called Hideaway. Yeah. And uh somehow or other it ended up down in Windsor, Ontario on a Battle of the New 45s oh. on radio. And Windsor was like the big market because it's right across the river from Detroit, yeah. And we were up against a song by Queen, and we won. Oh, and and oh. their song was another one bites the dust, and we did.
0: Wow, <laughs> jeez, isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah.
1: So God only knows, you know.
0: Yeah, well, it's sort of that—that that the business is stupid that way too. You're trying to reach for that brass ring, and you think you're almost there, and then these these things happen, and then you get you know you get smacked yeah. back down again. Yeah, right? it keeps you humble. So, uh, so then yeah, so it, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say. So then that was kind of the end of the band. And uh, speaking of being humble, I I grew a beard and uh, <laughs> tried tried to not be Jim Foster anymore, and went out and played pubs.
0: Well, you, doing... uh, you joined One Horse Blue, though, right? Did you not? Oh, much later. Much later, okay, yeah.
1: Much later, yeah. No, no I did pubs for a while and, and just worked on writing. Yeah. And uh, Lou Blair was, had been our manager in Foster Child and had told me that he was interested in managing me, but not the band. Okay. So we were still in touch, and when I had something, I'd send it to him. So I wrote a song called Dancing on the Power Lines.
0: Yeah.
1: And demoed it up at home and... and uh, He said, I can't believe you wrote this. And so that, because he was more into a rock thing, because, you know, they had Loverboy and Bruce Allen and Brian Adams and all of that kind of thing. And uh, before I even was able to get it out, Doug and the Slugs covered it.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And uh, so we went in and did the record and got my first American deal with RCA out of New York.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's. I listened to the whole album, and it's distinctly '80s. Like you definitely you pivoted. Oh yeah, right? you've got the more straight-ahead '80s rock tunes. It's like.
1: it's full on. It's Mike Fraser and pop rock.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, you could hear those influences. Yeah, yeah. And so that's so you ended up getting a, a U.S. deal. Then you got a U.S. deal with yeah. RCA. Yeah, yeah,
1: got a deal with RCA. Did they and put uh, cash?
0: Did they put the cash up for you to record and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And then. Uh, We weren't planning to do any touring until we got more tunes done or whatever, but then RCA offered me an opening slot on the Mr. Mr. Tour, and they were number one at Billboard at the time with Broken Wings. Nice. And I didn't have a band. Oh. So uh, I hired, I asked Daryl Burgess, who had played drums on the record, and co-written a few things with me. And uh, we got Jim Ryan, who now plays with Dirt Road Opera. Yeah. And played with the Cruzeiros, played with Patricia Conroy for a long time.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, Rob Bailey, who's been with a million bands. Yeah. Uh, and Mike Skinner came in to play sax because we had sax on the cut. Oh, cup. it's, it's Mike on there. Okay. Yeah. Nice. yeah. And he did a great... Actually, no, it's not. It's Dave Woodward on the album.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, As I worked with Mike, he, we did some shows when he, he came on and played sax. We did some legend shows and stuff. And Mike...
1: Yeah, did, oh, he's great.
0: Yeah, really good.
1: He's a great player, yeah, and a crazy guy.
0: Yeah, so uh, so yeah, but you got a hit song. I mean, you needed a genuine hit song, and you with X-ray eyes, you got it, right?
1: That's right. And so we did the tour, and we stole all the reviews. Literally, Richard Page came back to uh, the lead singer from Mr. Mister came back to uh, record up here with David Foster, maybe 20 years later. And Kathy Saint Germain said to him, "Oh, my guitar player opened for you uh, uh, up here." And he said, Jim Foster says, Yeah. He says, Well, if you read the reviews, we opened for him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that
1: must have been nice to hear. Well, that was, yeah. 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 But and they that, were great. You yeah. know, they just, they were studio guys, so they didn't have the presentation that they might have had. Right. In a live setting.
0: Some guys love being in the studio, they love that environment. Other guys don't want to be on stage and interact with the audience, right? And it's, it's got mm-hmm. to be good at both, really. And then you, it, that was in the age of much music, of course, so you had to do a video. Where'd you shoot that video for extra?
1: In Toronto, yeah, uh, in a warehouse on January 1st, and it was 50 Below. out.
0: Oh, jeez. Uh, and yeah. then they, you didn't use the band in it, right? It's just it's just you through most it's of it.
1: It's myself games. and Daryl. Daryl's okay. in there yeah. again, yeah.
0: Yeah. So why, why was that? They weren't promoting the band, they were just promoting well, you, I, I guess?
1: Well, I didn't have the band yet. Okay. This was before the tour. So I had done their album, but I didn't have a band.
0: Oh, I got you. Okay. You could have done the Robert Palmer thing and just brought in a bunch of <laughs> women dressed nicely, fake. Well, there are these. a few in there if you watched <laughs> the video. I, I did. Yeah. yeah. But fake players, it's, it's funny what, what yeah. Robert Palmer did. So, well, that was cool because um, the thing about the video era was it was expensive, right? I mean, that, that comes off, if that comes off your recoupable money, it oh, yeah. can be a lot You'd of money. You never
1: make any money
0: in this business. No, that's... It, it, Crazy. The only
1: way you could make money was from radio play. They paid pretty good.
0: Yeah. But the stupid thing about videos is you, you could spend tens of thousands of dollars making a video and there was no way, there was no monetary way to get that money back.
1: That's correct. It was just a total loss leader.
0: Yeah. And just you get promotions, So they play it on much music 20 times. Big deal. You got pennies for that. doesn't even begin to cover the cost of what it costs to produce it. So
1: Yeah. No, no.
0: but. So there were some good songs on there, like that uh, Quicker Than the uh, Eye. Yeah, was, I like that cool. one. I like that one. and, uh, and you've I like got my Do number. It
1: To Me. I heard it playing in a Safeway store once when oh, I was cool. shopping.
0: Oh, <laughs> neat. Yeah, good sounding, clear lead vocal. The lead vocal's tight. You know, I always try to listen to the songs, make a few notes of the things that jump out at me, and uh, really good lead vocal on that, really clear in the mix, right up in the mm-hmm. mix. So if you're walking through the Safeway, you'd hear the singing.
1: Yeah, it blew my mind.
0: Yeah, no, very cool. So again, you know, you're, you're, you're on the top of the world and you're feeling good. You got a hit song. You're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, right? And then what happened with the RCA deal?
1: They sold the record company.
0: Oh. Huh?
1: I thought I was signed to Nipper the Dog. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know,
1: Elvis Presley, come on. These guys have been here forever. Yeah. Well, they were just a subsidiary of RCA. The record company was a subsidiary of RCA, which ah, okay. sold refrigerators and everything else and also owned NBC. Hmm. Well, General Electric wanted the refrigerators, and they wanted NBC. The thing they didn't want was a recording company. So, yeah. they put a stop on everything. There was no more tour support. There was no next single in America. Um, and I was up in the 20s and 30s on the charts with X-Ray Ice in the States. Yeah, and uh, it just went for crap. But it also went for crap for Mr. Mister and Hall & Oates and a lot of bigger names than me. You know.
0: Yeah.
1: And. Uh, nothing happened for like a year or two before finally bmg bought the company and at that point said uh... well you know we want to hear what you've got for the next record and my manager said why would we do that no there, no opportunity was made to recoup all the money that was spent on the first record and if we do another record for you now we have to pay back all of that money when it wasn't us that dropped that ball Yeah. so he said just forget it huh. and uh... see what happens and it was actually quite a enjoyable, strange thing for me to not have a record deal anymore yeah. and to be able to write songs just for me again. Because, you know, I had sat in boardrooms in New York City around a 30-foot-long, ridiculous oak wood table or something of yeah. private chefs and all these guys talking about everything. And, and I'd be writing a song, and they'd already be in my head. Are they going to like this? Or yeah. should they, is it, you know? And so... That I got rid of that, and uh, just started working for myself again. And then Jim Ryan, my bass player, was working with Patricia Conroy, and he took her uh, song called "Here We Go Again" that I'd written. Yeah, and uh, she got a hit out of it.
0: Uh, nice. Hey, I, I was a big fan. I thought Patricia Conroy was great. Great. Voice, oh, she is beautiful. She just, totally is. Everything. She's
1: writing big hits in Nashville these days. Oh, well,
0: good for her. Good for yeah her. that's that's nice to hear. But yeah it's it's funny what you say about the record business because I hear that over and over again. I mean at the end of the day that's what it is. You know, you're, you're making a commodity for them to sell. And like the old saying goes, it's the suits that ruin the music business and the creative side of it is really secondary because they want to sell units. Yeah. It's kind of a blood sport, especially down in the States. And so you didn't really make a huge splash in the States other than that, getting x-ray eyes on there, but you need the, the management, the record company, the money, the promotion. You need a lot of pieces to fall into place to, to take yeah. that next level, right? Exactly. So, so you walked away from that, and then you went back to uh, to playing clubs and just kind of writing tunes and recording and, and writing tunes. Yeah, Patricia other
1: did a couple of them. Yeah, um, I had some friends that asked me if I wanted to go play in Taiwan, so I took my club band over and we played a big concert in Taiwan. And oh wow! That led to me meeting some other people. Oh cool! And going to Hong Kong and spending time there, and then. One of the engineers at Mushroom here, I was working just on an independent project with him. He had been the assistant engineer on the Power Lines album. So we went in and did some carpentry and stuff to pay for recording time oh, nice. and st- started doing a project. And one day this uh, Asian producer came in with a young artist named Andy Lau, yeah. uh, who was like the Elvis of the Hong Kong scene.
0: yeah,
1: Millions of dollars. So they... Wanted Rob to move over there and build them a big SSL studio, so he did. Oh. And then I flew over there and stayed with him for a month and did some recording and oh, nice and whatnot. So it was just a catch as catch can kind of thing. And I came back from that, and then One Horse Blue, I had no work. One Horse Blue said, "Hey, we've got a new record out. We need a lead guitar player. You want to want to yeah. come in?" So I did cool. that with them for a few years.
0: But you had a connection with Rocco long before that. Though. Oh yeah.
1: Well, they recorded Hero of the West on their first album.
0: Yeah,
1: or second album. Maybe it was the second album. Yeah, but you know, we were Calgary. they were Edmonton. It's not that far apart. There's a friendly, co- competitive thing. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't even remember where Rockwood, mm-hmm. but we used to play tennis together and stuff. It was just yeah. we were buds.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, it's funny because in the mid '90s, like I, I knew of you obviously with X-Ray Eyes and stuff, but I didn't know you back then. But then in the mid '90s, I know you had Jim Foster in the rockin hoodoos, and the Rock and Hoodoos. And the the funny story I have is because we we booked through the same agent, Phil Watkins. And uh, you were booked one time at the Fraser Valley Inn, I think, at Abbotsford, and and Phil called me one time, it was probably a Tuesday, I think, I had my band Hot Rails at the time, and he called me, he said he said, hey, I got Jim booked here, but he can't do this weekend, would you fill in for him? And I said, well, sure. So we went out and we we went to the gig and it said on the big marquee, Jim Foster and the Rockin' Hoodoos. And so we went in I said, well, Jim's not going to, can't do it this week. We're, we're covering for him. Can you change the sign? He goes, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. So we played the Friday night and it was a two night gig. And then we came back on the Saturday and it still had... Jim Foster on the, on the marquee, right? And I went up to the bartender I said, Hey man, Jim, Jim's not going to be here this week. It's hot rails here. He goes, yeah, whatever. The guy didn't come in today. Don't worry about it. So about halfway through the night on the Saturday, I was joking. Cause we were playing under your marquee. And I said, well, Jim's going to have to give me some, you know, some love here for all the good promo we're doing for him this weekend. And everybody, everybody laughed and carried on, but they never did change the sign. So I played under your, your uh, marquee. It's still up right? there Probably. <laughs> probably. But you you made some money there. You went out and played again. I, I always applaud that. You know, you put a band together and you had the Rockin' Hoodoos for oh yeah. A few we years, right?
1: we did quite well. We yeah. we did some uh, legendary gigs at the Arts Club. We put we would go in there on the long weekend of May and again on the long weekend in September and open and close the patio. Yeah. And it was a three day gig, and so we would play Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday from three till midnight, and never repeat a song through all three gigs. Cool. Yeah. That's you nice. know. It was just a, something we wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. And we did that for, gosh, I think like 12 years or something and Party Central, just nuts.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you got you to gotta do what you got to do. And if the, if you can't tour and you don't want to be out of town all the time, yeah. you, you go and play, yeah. right? You want to play. Yeah. And then I think um, one thing I've always admired about you is that you really like the acoustic guitar. I'm much the same way. It, it, some, some rock guitar players, that's what they play as electric, right? But you've always been really good with the acoustic stuff. And I, I wanted to do that as well. So when I first met you, the first time I met you was probably 20 years ago, you were playing with uh, Rocco and Kathy. I think it was down in West Georgia somewhere. I think. It was, oh,
1: at the uh, Georgia hotel.
0: It must, must've been because I, I know we were doing a corporate event down there and we came down and hung out with you guys. Right. And, uh, listened to you play and stuff. And it was really nice. I mean, was, you and Rocco were playing guitar, I think, and Kathy was singing. Yeah. It was really good, yeah. And so you did that gig for a while, too. That was kind of a house gig, right?
1: We played there, and we used to play at the Coast Hotel and, and a few places. Yeah. Yeah. It was comfortable, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, playing with talented people is always a great thing.
0: The, the diversity of it is cool because I've kind of done that too like if you want to make a living in the music business you gotta, you gotta try to say yes to whatever you can so you got a rock band you got a, a little lounge trio I don't care what it is so I'll play by yeah. I do acoustic gigs like like you do uh, now you know, who
1: cares? oh yeah and I had done a single back mm-hmm. in the day back in out of college
0: yeah okay well listen let me take one more break and then we'll come back and do our last segment talking to Jim Foster hey do you want to hear about new episodes before they go live then join the Liner Notes VIP community You'll be able to listen to the weekly podcast before the general public, plus the episodes have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. You'll also hear exclusive bonus episodes and be the first to know about upcoming guests. To check out the details and become a member, go to linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Jim Foster about his many experiences and varied experiences and the ups and downs of the music business and... uh, uh, his take on it. So we're good to have uh, good to have you with us today, Jim. Thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be invited. And,
0: and uh, so you've had some ups and downs. I mean, I guess everyone has those things that happen. You know, you feel like you're you're on top of the world one day. You got a hit song. Everything's going great. And then, you know, other times you're a little bit lower. Did you did you feel like you just didn't quite pull the trigger like the way that you wanted to at times?
1: Not so much, really. Um, I sometimes felt like we were misplaced yeah like square square peg round hole like the band wasn't exactly what they wanted it to be but they were going to push us into those places anyway
0: yeah
1: you know and and uh i was never lover boy and and i could try as hard as i wanted to but they really are lover boy paul dean is that and mike reno is that they're 100 percent that and People can copy it, but it doesn't do, do you any good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. I So I, yeah, I you have it. to just be who you yeah. are. And yeah. uh, so for me, it was a longer road. And I've, I started doing singles again and uh, working really hard on trying to do a single the way a piano piano player could.
0: Yeah.
1: With the left hand and working on finger style and everything to, to try and cover more more stuff. And yeah. ended up landing a ridiculous number of restaurant gigs to where I was just working every day if yeah. I wanted to. And uh, that really informed what I was doing and, and gave me some money. So then I yeah. uh, went back into the studio a bit with Linda Kidder and uh, Donnie Mekalak, and we were doing some demos and stuff. And uh,
0: oh, cool!
1: I got to know Paul Hovan, who uh, is a promoter around town. Back in the day, he was the one that promoted all the entertainment into the Commodore for 20 years.
0: Yeah,
1: And uh, he said, I want to help you with your CD. And uh, so he came up with some dough. Nice. And I, and I went into the studio with Juris Maxwell and, uh, and Brian Newcomb and banged off five songs in a day at Baker Street. Nice. And uh, that became the Lone Bird CD. Yeah. And then Paul had a record label with just me and Delana Gale-Bowen at that time.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, then I think 2008 happened and the money was kind of low. Yeah. <laughs> so... I had uh, all these songs that I was writing because a friend of mine who had been my road crew since foster child days and had gone on to work with Adams and Lever Boy and ZZ Top for many years and B.B. King and all these people. But he was also a sailor when he wasn't on the road in a, in a truck or a bus. He was on the sea.
0: Yeah.
1: And he passed away. And uh, I got a couple songs that just I know they came
0: from him. Yeah, oh, nice.
1: Late late at night. And so I recorded a CD called Sailor's Advice. Yeah. And and I recorded it into my iPhone with my iPhone sitting in a Kleenex box. So the mic was sitting up facing me.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, it's all mono and it sounds great.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool.
1: I learned how to work that microphone. Yeah. And uh, it's all live vocals and guitar simultaneous. So no headphones, so no pitch problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the other thing, right? Nobody ever talks about that. When you get into overdubbing and you're wearing headphones, you don't have a true sense of pitch. Yeah. Because the Doppler effect comes into play. Yeah. So then they go, oh, that's pitchy. We'll punch you in. Well, suddenly you've lost the integrity of the performance. Yeah. There's all these bits and pieces stitched together. So I figured, you know, Robert Johnson can just play with a mic under the bed. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) No, it's a good point that you make because it, it. I find it's a very artificial environment. You know, you grow up and you're playing and you're singing and playing and it's real natural. And then you get into the studio and it's kind of weird. You know, your your guitar's rubbing against your shirt and your voice isn't quite right. And you're hearing it through the headphones. And it's just a, an art artific- it's a different experience.
1: Yeah. And, and a, some people are great at it, but yeah. I just found that there was something about the immediacy of just sitting yeah. down and playing my guitar yeah. and singing simultaneously and I never had any pitch problems that way.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, so I was going to say about the band, like like what I've discovered over the years and sort of analyzing the situation. I mean, the big bands like the Lover Boys and stuff when you got, you know, 5, 10, 15 hit songs. I mean, you're off to the races, you're good, right? But there's a below that is this sort of mid-level of bands. So they're good bands. They got a couple of songs that did real well, maybe a maybe one genuine hit song, but it's really hard for those bands to make a living because your expenses trump the money that you're bringing in right
1: yeah or the d- singer has to join Ringo's band
0: yeah there you go <laughs> you know so for,
1: well that's the music biz ain't it
0: yeah for the mid-level bands you know the the the, the big guys they, they get what they get because they're all independently wealthy the rest of us you know are just trying to make a living right yep so oh yeah so what sacrifices did you make along the way like for your personal life and your what did you give up for your aspirations
1: um I gave up having children I made a yeah. conscious decision to not do that because I knew okay. if I did I'd have to stop playing yeah I, I'd seen that happen to too many people I kind of maybe regret it maybe don't yeah um, there's no point regretting it I am
0: yeah is,
1: who, who I am yeah. now and uh, you know
0: yeah
1: and writing is still a real joy for me and and that had I cut that continuum off
0: you know it wouldn't be so yeah. And then, so looking back on your career, though, is there anything, like, from from now where you sit now, looking back, what what would you change? Or was there anything that you were, like, your managers, you know, your bandmates? No, I wouldn't
1: change anything. Yeah. I'm I'm actually quite happy, which is how I've managed to get along, you know, through everything. It's just trying to always look on the bright side of (laughs) life. You know. Yeah. Um, Just little things, like... uh, getting a phone call one day and asking if I wanted to write with Murray McLaughlin who'd been one of my heroes back yeah. when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And next thing I know, Murray shows up at my house with a case of beer and we're sitting in the kitchen writing a song and he goes, I'm going to put this on my album. Well, I mean, you know, nice. yeah, for me, that that was just yeah. beyond, above and beyond. And uh, yeah. Paul helping me do the CDs and, and I did the last one and uh, gosh, yeah. basically sacrificed my marriage on the last cd just it was like i was gone i was doing the cd my mother had passed away i was pouring everything into the cd yeah and uh the last song that i got we'd already released the cd and but the song came called radio on and i i I was like i like this
0: yeah
1: and uh so i sent it to dean hill just on the uh, that's the thing and he goes oh my god this is great but i djs can't play what they want to anymore yeah, sent it to Terry David Mulligan. So I sent it to Terry David, and he loved it, and uh, started playing it on CKUA. Yeah, and uh, then we did a little video of it, and I didn't make a penny off of it, but that's not the point. The point is, I still felt validated. Yeah, and I don't, I don't have to do that all the time. And now it's another few years later. Like I've been just locked down over here because we're old, and now we finally got one vaccine shot. But yeah. you know, it's it's scary. Yeah. So I haven't done much. I haven't played. I haven't felt like doing anything. And then I got this little idea for a guitar instrumental with one word every once in a while. It goes, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I did a quick recording of it. Well, I sent it off to Terry last night, oh. and he really likes it and wants oh, nice. to do a radio edit, and he's going to play it. Oh. And uh, there's a band, a local blues band that I'm not going to mention because, yeah. you know, I don't want to jinx it, but they're really interested in doing it along with another song that i wrote for them oh, good. so you know that yeah. keeps me going it's not all about money although some money would be nice
0: yeah well you know you you uh you grabbed for the ring and you and you got it to a certain measure it's just you know when you're looking back like one thing about you that i i've, I've always known about you is you know you you seem like a pretty nice guy and, and reasonable guy. And and I always wonder about the music business, like for myself too, I try to be nice, but then you have to push sometimes too, right? Do you think that, you know, like someone like Bruce Allen, who's really rough and tough and just pushes, push, push, push. And he gets credit for that. Whereas other guys, you know, sometimes are too nice. Do you think that you were too nice or too passive? Well,
1: you can't do that as an artist. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you can. Don Henley has a bit of a (laughs) reputation that way, but, you want your manager to do that for you, yeah. You know, or else you're an asshole. And your job as an artist is to be. It's not about being likable. It's about being believable.
0: Yeah.
1: You sing the song, and they need to believe that you really feel it, that you really mean it, and hopefully you do. You know. And if you've got a voice like Brian Adams, you can make that believable. Yeah. And so. Brian can't be going around yelling and screaming at people, but he'll yell and scream at Bruce and then Bruce will go out and yell and scream at other people.
0: Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, for me being a sort of mid-level guy, I've, I've made a living for the last few decades, but I've, I've really had to try to balance that out. Cause you, if I don't push, then I don't get, and I need to get, cause I need to make a living. So I try yeah. to be nice, but I'm also pretty intense about getting what I need to get,
1: you know, getting bookings and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Cause it's a, it's a, eat your up world out there. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so I, yeah, I just wondered if you thought you were you were too nice.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I was yeah. stupid sometimes. Yeah, you know, naive uh, with regards to the politics of how an agency works yeah. and uh, or a record company and pissing people off in my naivete. Yeah. Uh, but you know, that's just learning. Yeah. What else can you do? And uh, I feel. I feel quite happy to have had, as a friend of mine said, about his success, the modest success that I've had. Yeah. Somebody said to me once, wow, man, they didn't know anything about me. They just heard me playing at a gig. Wow, man, you're amazing. You should be really famous. And, and without thinking, I said, you know, I almost was twice. It's not, <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Yeah, it's, yeah.
1: it's really uncomfortable
0: yeah.
1: when people know who you are. That's something that not that many people talk about. all these people out there these days want to be famous, as if fame was like something, but when you're walking down the street and people know who you are and you don't know who they are, it's like having a target on your back it you is know? an odd
0: it is an odd feeling it's uh, I've, I've had people come up and, and talk to you like they know you and you have no clue who that person is. That is an odd sensation
1: and if it's a girl yep. and she's all effusive, and her boyfriend's standing there with his arms <laughs> crossed, looking at you like. <laughs> You know, that's really uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that's good. So for you, I mean, obviously the music business has changed over the last 50 years, you know, but, uh, you know, and and for everyone's experience too, but how do you think the music business has has changed in the last 50 years, that good or bad?
1: Well, the business, that's different than asking about the music.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, The business is a mess. You know, there's still a bunch of people ripping people off like there always were. Yeah. Um, you can be on the bright side of it and go, hey, you know, everybody can have a recording studio on their laptop now, and and you can make a record and put it, throw it out there, and maybe somebody will hear it. Maybe somebody will like it. That's the plus side. In the old days, you couldn't do that. It cost so much money to record. Nobody could do it. Yeah. The downside, of course, is everybody's doing it, so you can't be heard because it's like there's ten million new average songs been released. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I don't. I don't push it all the time. I, I've written and recorded a number of tunes since I did radio on and sent it out to a couple of DJs. Yeah. But this new one, I thought, was worthy. So I picked my spots, but at least I know a couple of people I can send it to who might play it Yeah. once or twice. Like like Dean Hill liked it, He and he sa- so he asks me on Facebook, he says, can I play the first minute of this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Of course, yeah. You know? <laughs> And so next thing I know, some guy I don't even know comes on Messenger and goes, you were on the Fox today. And I said, I think it was 101. He goes, right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you were on 101 today. (laughs) Somebody hears this, you know.
0: Well, you got a platform that most people wouldn't have just because of your past, right? So that that's right bodes well for you, and you can kind of do a little fishing and throw stuff out there. But you make a good point about the music biz- business being saturated now. I mean, it's just the saturation level is through the roof, right?
1: Yeah, and there's no what's the word I'm looking for in the old days. The the record companies nourished young acts, yeah, and the clubs nourished young acts. That scene's all gone, yeah. and so now they just cherry pick whoever's got something going on on YouTube if you got enough things then the record company comes along and goes well we can make you a bunch more money but of course they're going to make a bunch more money out of it more yeah. than you are
0: and then a yeah. lot, of, lot of it is scratching for pennies now it's, it's the same deal right? some people make a lot because they, they have a certain way of doing that and they have a platform that allows them to have millions of, of viewers or, or, or streams but most people are scratching for pennies right yep
1: yeah. so I just don't really bother yeah it just seems pointless you know
0: Yeah. Well, you're, you're at a different point in life too. So you're, yeah, I'm old. Yeah. Well, you don't have anything left to prove, right?
1: (laughs) No, I'm old and I get an old age pension now. That just saves my ass. It's not much, (laughs) but it saves my ass. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. So you've rubbed shoulders with a lots of people over the years and oh, you, yeah. is there anybody you still stay in touch with or who really impressed you? Like who, who really stands out in your mind of people that entertainers that you met that really, you thought.
1: Okay, that Gosh, was. there's nobody that I, that I stay in touch with except Greg Leiths, the steel player. I mean, he's played with the Eagles. He's does yeah. the Jackson Brown. He's, he's, he was Katie yes. Lang's guy for many, many oh, years, nice. but I mean, He's the go-to guy. I've seen yeah. him on Letterman with a million bands back wow. in the day, you know.
0: Huh.
1: Uh, and he's a sweetheart.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Just a, He's a lovely guy. No, um, I saw Murray McLaughlin when he came to town. I went out and saw him and, and yeah. uh, hung for an hour, you know. Cool. But everybody's got their life, you know, what yeah. he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that the one thing that the saving grace of my career is that I didn't get famous enough that I have to be that guy. You know, uh, as much as it's great that that Mike Reno can go out and sing "The kid is hot tonight and working for the weekend and make great dough, yeah financially, that's a great thing, but i I imagine it's a little frustrating for them because I know they have new material that they do, and nobody cares,
0: well, yeah, it's it, funny because he lives he lives in South Surrey, right? And uh, you know, a friend of mine <laughs> said that he saw him he was going into the Safeway one time and some guy yelled at him, "Hey, the kid is hot tonight." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's walking into the Safeway with his wife. <laughs> but
1: Mike can wear that. He, he loves being my Reno, you know, so yeah. that's part of it. For me, I don't want to be X-Ray Eyes guy.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it's not the style of music that I really like.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and so I'm free to do whatever I want to do artistically yeah. and reinvent myself with the acoustic guitar over the last number of years. And as I aged, putting more blues in there because it just suits me, not because I'm trying to be... Old black guy, yeah, you know, and all those things. So, it's just uh, it's been really quite lovely. I yeah, yeah, sure. There's a downside. We could wallow in that, but you know, why bother?
0: No, you've been doing great at it too, and you got a great reputation for it. And like I said, I I remember, um, Kim, our singer that in the band, she had come out, come down. I remember Kimmy. Yeah, yeah. We lost her ten. It'll be ten years this summer that we yeah. lost her. Yeah, but she had come and seen you one time, I think, with Kathy, and just came back and said she how great you were and how much she enjoyed listening to you and just, you know, the heartfelt singing and the nice finger picking. And she just really commented on it. And I said, well, yeah, he's got a great reputation for that. So good for you. So.
1: Well, you know, you just keep trying. There's, there's so many people better, right? Wow. At, at, at one thing. Like, I'm pretty lucky because I can sing, right and play guitar. yeah It just gives you something to continue to want to improve at. Yeah. You see what somebody like that does, you go, oh, maybe I can just steal a little <laughs> bit of that yeah, and yeah. just put that into what I'm doing. Or vocal-wise, you know, if, if you see somebody else, great singer, you go, oh, right, okay, yeah, I should yeah. be using more texture than, yeah. you know, whatever. Just little stuff like that yeah, just keeps you going. There's a great line from, uh, I can't think who it is, great violinist or whatever, and they said, uh, you know, he's 80 years old. They said, why do you keep doing it? And he says, well, you know, I think I'm starting to get pretty good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. You know, it's funny. One thing that I do is I, I have on my guitar um, the initials T-E, and it stands for Tommy Emmanuel. And so oh, yeah. I, I actually took a... a felt marker on my strat neck and i wrote the initials te and then on my acoustic i have a little piece of white tape and it has te on it and i had to tell my wife what that was i said that stands for tommy emmanuel every time i don't play as well as i think i should i just use him as an inspiration because he's so unbelievable i'll never be what he is but he gives well, me that boost
1: you know? they don't need you to be what he is no. the point is you you nailed it right there yeah. you try to be as good as you can be not trying to be as good as you can be being as good as you can be yeah. 100% all the time. Give whatever you've got today, you know, because yeah. that's what he does.
0: Yeah, and so and, and he smiles while he's doing it. He closes yeah. his eyes and smiles, and he's playing stuff I could never dream of playing. <laughs> but it's good. I, it, so it's been an inspiration for me. So I always like to ask at the end of my interviews, what, what's something about you that people wouldn't know? Like, do you have a, a hobby or something, or do you do something else outside of music that you are passionate about? Oh,
1: no, not really. I'm boring yeah uh i uh i like to read okay i read a i read an awful lot because i i like the word yeah. and so and lyrics uh, yeah. you know are, are a big part of what i've always done it yeah. the difference between a tune and a song is lyrics and and yeah. so that was a thing and then these days it's just you know i got a cord and a half of maple out the side of the house that needs to be split up and hauled out to the back woodshed yeah. during the summer and Nice. That sort of stuff is is really good. I had a used to have a place up on Savory Island where I built a cabin. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh finally had to sell it cuz I'm just too old to hump stuff up there. It's just,
0: yeah. you know. Yeah, and you can it's, yeah, that's right. I, I have some friends that go to Savory every year cuz they get the big long sandy beach there. They got the
1: Yeah. It's fabulous, but my God, they call it Slavery Island because it's so hard yeah. to get your stuff over there.
0: Yeah, and you then know? you you live on the Sunshine Coast now, so you're more rural. Uh, yeah, were yeah. you a city guy before? Like you lived in the city for a lot, right?
1: Well, I had a farm up by Ladner when I first came up from Alberta, and then uh, lived in town f- since then. Yeah, and yeah. you know, yeah, sure, you get you get urbanized, but it's nice to get over back over here, and it's semi urban. Yeah. You know, especially with the the pandemic going on, it's great to not be in the center of all of that. Yeah, I have to say. But there's a lovely group of folks over here, all the way up the coast. Oh yeah, uh, Yeah. um, just fabulous, creative musical people and artists of all stripes. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to fall into, get introduced to a few, and then they've introduced me to more. And it's it's a really rewarding little cultural social scene up here.
0: Yeah, nice. yeah, I've spent lots of time up there all the way up to Powell River and and back down lots of times. so I that's one of the most beautiful places in the world as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, good. well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. A really interesting conversation and you shared lots of stuff about your journey and and about what you're doing now, and I really appreciate it. I'm sure the, the listeners will like to know what uh, Jim Foster's been up to and and what you're up to now.
1: Well, I hope so. It's been really interesting, Dan. I mean, you yeah. know, I just came right out of the blue. I had no idea, and I hope somebody is interested.
0: Yeah, no, it's, and it's,
1: uh, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, good. Well, thanks for taking the time, and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. And and all the best to, to you.
1: Great talking to you. Take
0: care, brother. Many thanks to my guest Jim Foster for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his long and successful music career. More information is available at jimfoster.ca and also on Facebook at Jim Foster. You can find them there. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. and We also invite you to listen to dustydiscsradio.com Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you are hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.